Well, I invite you to open in your Bible, if you have a Bible with you, to the book of Hebrews that we are studying, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 4, right at the end of chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to find your place there. If you, if you don't have one in front of you, we'll, we'll put the words on the screen. You can follow there as we open the Scriptures. In my introduction to this letter we call Hebrews, I stated that the entire message of this book is encapsulated in one verse. If you want the whole message of Hebrews in one verse, and it's our verse this morning, at least where we're starting, Hebrews 4, verse 14. Let me put it on the screen or you can look there. Here's here's the entire book, the message in this one verse. It reads this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. There it is. That one sentence contains the whole of Hebrews. We have a great high priest. That's certainly the dominant theme of this book. He's going to unfold that in great detail. That great high priest is none other than the Son of God Himself, Jesus. Therefore, because that is true, let us hold fast. Hold fast. Hold firmly to Him. The main exhortation of this book just, just notice in that statement the two parts of that statement. There is the truth about Jesus, who he is, the high priest, this weight of theology that our author is going to develop for us. What does it mean? We might even mean, what does it mean that he's a high priest? Why do I need a high priest? So he's going to develop that in such great detail. But that weight of theology about Jesus, the second part, serves his central pastoral exhortation through this letter, let us hold fast. Since this is true, and he's going to show us how true it is, therefore let us hold fast. Don't turn away from him. His readers, it seems, the original readers of this letter are in some danger of turning away, of falling away from Jesus for various reasons. So that's his main exhortation. He writes this letter like a sermon. It's really a sermon letter. Now, our author is going to take 13 chapters to unfold and develop the truth contained in this one verse. That's what he's doing in this book. As we come to this part of Hebrews chapter 4 and the end of chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, we are, we are really launching into the second major section of his sermon letter. The first part, part one, started in Hebrews 1, verse 1, and all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. That was part one. We just finished that last Sunday. There, in that first part, he was emphasizing the importance of faithful obedience to the Word of God, the decisive final word. Here's my one-line summary of that whole first part that we just finished. Hold fast to God's final decisive word in His Son. 
It's what that first part was all about. Hold fast to this final word of God that has come in his son. He has spoken finally, decisively in his son. He has spoken this great word of salvation, so hold fast to him. And our author underscored the importance of holding fast by using the history and fate of that unfaithful generation of Israel in the wilderness who all fell in unbelief, falling away from the living God. And it was a sobering example in his exhortation to us. We saw it twice in chapter 3, hold fast, hold fast to our confession to Christ. Now in that first part of his letter that we just finished, he opened that section with an exposition of the Son, the Son's grandeur, God's Son, the grandeur of the Son, the superior greatness of the Son. That's how he opened, so that we see who the Son is. He is the eternal Son. In fact, he's the agent of creation. He holds all things together right now. He is of the same essence as God the Father. That's who the Son is. And now he is uniquely exalted as the Son at God's right hand as our Savior and what he is going to call our high priest. He explains how this eternal divine Son comes to be the exalted Son, Savior, High Priest at God's right hand. He explains that in that first section. And the way that happened was through the incarnation, taking on a flesh, becoming a man, the eternal Son taking to himself a human nature, and his sufferings, his death. That's how he comes to be the exalted Son at God's right hand. It's stunning. I've said several times, it's the great plot twist of all of history. How does the eternal son come to this exalted son as high priest? It's through his sufferings. So that part of his opening, look at the end of chapter here. You just want to glance back because he was was building to this. At the end of chapter 2, in the first section, as he was explaining how the son came to be the exalted son, it's the first time he mentioned the son as the high priest. So look there, chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, in the first verse of chapter 3. Let me read it. It's on the screen there, but just to remind you of this. Speaking of the son, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren, that's us, his brothers and sisters, in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's what the letter is all about. He wants us to consider Jesus. This is the first time in the letter that he refers, designates the Son, Jesus, as the high priest. And I mentioned then that he's the only author in the whole Bible that refers to Jesus, that calls Jesus the high priest. It's really remarkable. It's really stunning. 
and is just calling for explanation. Now, he's assuming a lot of his readers, Jewish readers, steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and those categories. We don't have all those categories. It's going to take us a little harder to explain what is a high priest and why do we need one so desperately, but that's what he's doing here. So it's just calling for explanation, but here at this point in his letter, he didn't explain it. Instead, he just, he went on to give a warning about unbelief, because that's his main point in this first section, this call to be steadfast, to hold fast to Christ. And so he, he went on in the next chapters to just warn us about the danger of unbelief. But now, as we come to the end of chapter 4, he's done with that first section, and he resumes, he's really picking it up from the end of chapter 2. When he says in chapter 4, verse 14, since then, we have a great high priest. He just, he's resuming his thought that he introduced back in chapter 2 of Jesus as the high priest, and now he's going to develop it. So now we are beginning part 2 of the sermon, part 2 of the letter of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 14. And this section is big. It's going to go all the way through chapter 10, verse 18. This is the second major section of his letter. What is this section all about? Very simple. Jesus, our all-sufficient high priest. That's what this section is about. He's going to develop what he introduced, and he's going to do it in great detail. Now, it's still going to attain warnings and exhortations. We'll see that as we go, but mainly about the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus. So we'll see it in detail over these months that we unfold this part of Hebrews. But let's this morning see the intro to this next section. It's chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. These are our three verses. Let me read those for us as he makes his way now into this section of Jesus as high priest. Again, let me reread verse 14 and then 15 and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us, therefore, draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. As he resumes the theme of Christ's high priesthood, and he's preparing now to develop it, once again, he doesn't immediately develop it. He states the magnitude of it. He's a great high priest, and he's whetting our appetite for what is to come. He's going to explain what all that means. But first, even here as he transitions, he comes back to this primary exhortation and the present help we have through Christ to persevere. He's going to connect this priesthood to our present helps. That's what he does first before he's going to explain all of his priesthood. We want to look at it. Our sympathetic high priest. That's my heading here. Our sympathetic high priest. This is the present and very, very precious aspect of Christ's priesthood that he emphasizes here for our ongoing help to hold fast. He's not only a great high priest, he's a sympathetic high priest. 
And that has real relevance to us right now this morning. And that's what he highlights first. Now, if you look at those verses there in your Bible, his, his thought is very easy to follow. This is not complex. His thought is easy to follow. He, he's going to give two exhortations. And you'll see those at the words, let us. He's including himself, let us. See this all through the book of Hebrews. He's going to give two exhortations, and those two exhortations are based on two realities about the priesthood of Christ. So, so very simple flow of thought. Two basis, two exhortations. And it's in the form of, since we have this, let us do this. Since we have this, since this is true, let us do this. So he gives, he's going to give the basis and then the exhortations. So very simple to follow him. Because we have a great high priest, let us do this. Because we have a sympathetic high priest, let us do this. So it's a twofold appeal based on the priesthood of Christ. Here, here again, I'm going to give you a one-line summary of these three verses, right? So we don't lose sight of where we're at. Here it is. Hold fast your confidence in Christ by making use of the grace that he provides right now. Hold fast. How do you do that? By making use of the grace he provides. How does he provide it? He's the high priest. All of it is based on his high priesthood. So hold fast by making use of the grace he provides. And that grace is so available from our high priest here this morning. That's the heart of what he's saying. But let's, let's look at it a little closer since there's just this twofold appeal, twofold exhortation. I'll just look at it under those two points. Number one, our great high priest. That's where he starts, our great high priest. Again, verse 14, he's just resuming what he kind of dropped in back in chapter two about Christ being high priest, and he's, he's picking up. Since then, we have a great high priest. <laughs> He is great. Now, that's never used anywhere in the Bible of any high priest. He's either a high priest or a great priest. But to be a great high priest, that is, he's immeasurably superior. He's in a category by himself when it comes to priest and high priest. Now, he's going to develop, he's, he doesn't develop that here. He's going to develop that, the superior nature of Christ's priesthood in the subsequent chapters. He, here he just gives us a very compact description. You see it? Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. What does that even mean? He's passed through the heavens. Now again, he, he has Old Testament background in mind of the role of the high priest. He's going to explain this more, but he's assuming some of this. Remember, that's where we have a high priest, and that imagery of the high priest, remember the high priest was the one who once a year passed through the outer tabernacle into, behind the veil, out of sight, the inner tabernacle to make atonement. That was the high priest's role once a year to do that. No one else. So he's, he's picking up on imagery here. He hasn't explained it yet. This high priest has also passed through the heavens, and he just, by heaven, he just means everything that's above us. Everything's just, it's just all the, all the layers of the heavens he has passed through to where? Well, as he will explain later, into the very presence of God, wherever that is. He has passed through the heavens. They watched him ascend. 
He has passed through the heavens. So he's picking up on this imagery, but he has passed through right into God's dwelling. And he sat down. Again, just, just notice this description. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Who is he? Jesus, the Son of God. He's already explained those terms for us. So he's just picking up on what he's already explained. He's the Son of God. That is, he's the eternal Son. That's who he is by the Son of God. This is the eternal Son, and he's Jesus. He's the incarnate man. That's who the high priest is. So let me just give it to you, one note here, summary. As the eternal Son, who is fully man, he has entered God's presence on our behalf. That's what it means to be a priest. He's representing us. As the eternal son, who is fully man, he must be both. He is God, very God, the essence of God, and he is fully one of us. He has entered God's presence for us. Now again, he's going to wait to explain what that means, what, what the nature of his representation is and how he does that and why that's significant. Here he's just stating it, again, just whetting our appetite for what's coming. But his divine sonship and his full identification with humanity are the basis on which he surpasses every priest that's ever lived. He is the great high priest as the son of God and fully man. And he is our high priest. He said, we have a great high priest. We, we have him. He is for us. So that's where he starts, and then he gets right to his exhortation. You see it? If that's true, since we have this, let us hold fast our confession, or I'll put it this way. Let us continue to live a life that professes faith in Christ. Since this is true, we, we presently have this great priest in the presence of God for us, then hold fast to him. Continue to live a life that professes faith in Christ. Again, he's back to his main exhortation. This is the third time he's used this language of holding fast, persevering, hold firmly, don't give up, don't fall away, don't fall back. Hold fast our confession, he says. That is, that's the content of what we profess about Christ, what he's going to explain, who he is, our Savior, the Son of God, the High Priest, his atonement. Hold fast our confession. As we receive members into Crossroads, part of that membership is a doctrinal confession of faith. What is it that we believe? What is it that we confess? That's who we are as Christians. That is our confession. We, we profess faith in Christ, so he's saying hold on to it. Continue holding firmly to what we already possess. We have a great high priest. And the idea is if we turn away, if we turn away, there's no hope. There's no other high priest. There's no other great high priest. There's no other source of salvation, as he'll say in chapter 5. There's nowhere else to turn. So if this is true of who he is, cling to him tenaciously in faith. So that's first. Basis, exhortation. Number two. Here's the second. 
He's just going to build on it. Number two, our sympathetic high priest. So we go from our great high priest to our sympathetic high priest, which is my heading of the whole message here. So now, verse 15, he's going to move from the comprehensive nature of Christ priesthood to one specific aspect of his priesthood. One specific aspect that is very precious and not often thought on and almost too good to be true. <laughs> one aspect. And, he, and he's giving it as further incentive to hold fast. Do you see it there? Let us hold fast for our confession. Verse 15, for this is the kind of high priest we have. So it's just further. But then that becomes the basis for his second exhortation. A sympathetic high priest. What do I mean? The identification of the incarnate Jesus with his people, that he, he, identi he so identifies with us. This sympathy. Again, this is not a very familiar aspect of the priesthood of Christ. We, we think of his sacrifice, his atonement, his appearing before God, the forgiveness of our sins, all the things he's going to develop. But, but he starts here to relate it very directly to us. It's the same thing he did in chapter 2, the first time he introduced Jesus as the high priest who had to be made like us. And he immediately said, he's able to come to our aid. As one who was tempted, he's able to come to our aid since he was tempted. So he does the same thing here and he develops it even a little more. He says, verse 15, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. He, he uses a double negative. Now, those are a no-no in Greek grammar. Pardon the pun. We don't use double negatives. But in Greek, you do. And you do it to make something emphatic. So it, he literally says, we do not have a not sympathetic high priest. We do not have a priest who is unable to sympathize. The point is, we have one who is able to sympathize. It's just a way to make it emphatic. We have a great high priest, and we have one who is able to sympathize. Now, that word, we use the word to sympathize. You know what that means. If you say, I sympathize with someone, we mean by that we, we feel what another feels, right? We are able to relate to someone, maybe emotionally or their experience. We have something in common. We feel a sorrow, a, a pity, an understanding. And certainly this, this word has that, but this Greek word here behind our word sympathy is, is a little stronger. It's sympathy that leads to active assistance. It's not just I feel for you, but it's Yes, I do, and it provides help. He'll, he'll use the same one over in chapter 10 when, he, when he'll say to these Christians, you showed sympathy to those who were in prison. It didn't mean you just felt, you helped them. So what's he saying here? So let me try to unfold here this sympathetic high priest. First, his incarnate life, that is that he's truly a man who lived here with us on earth, gives him inner understanding of human weakness and makes him ready to give active help. So as truly man, incarnate, who lived here, he has an inner understanding, sympathy with us, 
specifically of our weakness, of our human weakness, what it is to live in the frailness of humanity, in the weakness of humanity. He is able to relate. He identifies. He sympathizes, which makes him ready to give active help. Doesn't stop with the feeling of sympathy, but his aid. That's what he's going to say in verse 16. He relates to our weaknesses. He can identify with our weaknesses, he says in verse 15. See that? Who cannot, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's just our human condition, especially afflictions and temptations. He is inwardly moved during our sufferings, our trials, our temptations with a desire to relieve us, to help us. He is. He is inwardly moved in his holy nature with our affliction, with our trial, with our temptation. That is, do you you realize that that is a significant reason for his incarnation? We understand maybe theologically that he had to become man to represent us and to pay for our sin. That's true. Glory, we're going to get to that. But it's not just this kind of theological or abstract exchange of sin and righteousness, but but it's the kind of high priest he is. He has taken on our nature so that he might sympathize with our weakness. That he might really relate to us in order to aid us right now. That's the kind of high priest we have, not aloof, not detached, not one who just does his duty and then takes his seat and wants nothing to do with us. No, he took on our nature. He became like us to sympathize with us. It's really remarkable. He goes on to say, what, how, do you, how do you know? Do you see it there in verse 15? We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. How, how do you know that's true? He gives the second part of it. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is how you know that you have a sympathetic high priest. I'll put it this way, my next note here. Because he has experienced and overcome every kind of temptation, he is able to empower us in our weakness. I find this to perhaps be the most stunning thing that is said about Christ as our priest. See it again there in verse 15. One who has been tempted in all things as we are. I I just think, I know personally, this is one of the hardest things for us to grasp about Jesus. We, We tend to think of Jesus like Superman, superhero. Like we love superheroes everywhere. They don't have weaknesses, right? They're not prone to the same things we are. And we tend to put Jesus in that case. Yeah, I know he's man, but he's really more like a superman. He didn't really have weakness, frailty, temptation. No, he was fully, truly human. He lived in the weakness of that human nature in the flesh, just like us. And he experienced temptation. He was tempted in every way that we are. That's 
stunning. Again, we're, we're uncomfortable here as we, we think about it. We want to be careful, but we, we're uncomfortable because for us, temptation and sin are just so, they're so intermingled, aren't they? Right? We, we often don't know where temptation starts and sin is happening, right? They're intermingled, but not with him. But it doesn't lessen that he was fully tempted or tempted in every way. Now, we'll see this through the writer of Hebrews. He highlights these kind of things like nowhere else in the Bible, and we will think on them, especially in chapter 5 when we, we come to it. But through the, through, through the Gospels, through the narrative, through the life of Jesus, we get glimpses into his temptation. Right? I, I can think of three very specific glimpses. The first is the most obvious, when he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. It's just remarkable in itself that he was led to be tempted, and we see the nature of his temptations. And all of those, what they have in common, remember, he's fasted for 40 days, hasn't eaten, hasn't drank, and then this temptation to turn stone into bread. Now, this, this is where we can disconnect, say, well, I've never been tempted to turn stone into bread, right? Because <laughs> I can't. Not a temptation for me, right? So I can't relate there. But that's the point. He could. He could. And he didn't. The point is, yes, yes, some of the specifics of his temptation will be different from ours. But the nature of the temptation is the same. What's the nature? Not to trust his father. That's the point through the wilderness Temptations is to not trust his father, to avoid suffering, to avoid the cross, to abandon allegiance to God. To think of himself first, his needs, right? That's the temptation that there, and that's the same temptation we faced. Yes, different specifics, but the nature is the same. And we see him there. And we see that it's powerful. He, he hasn't eaten in 40 days. And with a word, he could turn a stone into bread not apart from his father, and he won't. So we, we get some insight into temptation there. The, the second scene we see is what we sang about this morning in the garden. I love that song we sang, not my will but yours be done. How in that garden he persisted, I may never fully know. The fearful weight of true obedience was his alone. We see him in anguish. And what is he wrestling with? Right? Father, take this cup from me. Again, will he trust the Father? Will he obey his Father? Will he trust him in what is an unimaginable temptation to avoid this cup? We would, just the nature of that temptation, yet yeah, we would not, never experience in its fullness. He did, and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. And he obeyed. And then, of course, on the cross. The cross, really the height of that temptation as they mocked him. Come down, save yourself. You're the Messiah, come down. Again, that would not be a temptation to us. But he could in an instant. Imagine the mocking he received, the abuse he received. This is the Son of God incarnate. Imagine the temptation to instant revenge. Imagine the temptation to, to overcome. Remember he said, I, I could right now call 12 legions of angels right now to take care of this problem. He didn't. He obeyed 
his father. He was tempted in every way that we are. And so, so as we think of that, we could add to his temptation, to, temptation to covet, temptation, as I already said, to take revenge, a temptation to lust, a temptation to self-pity, a temptation to the wrong kind of pride, all of those. And then he adds the note, yet without sin. Don't, don't miss it. He never once yielded. He never once yielded. His, his full experience of human temptation would have been useless had he not been without sin. We don't need another sinner. We have plenty of those. <laughs> we need one who faced we faced and never yielded. We can be certain that he is able to give us victory. It's right? the idea. C.S. Lewis, many years ago, dealt with a possible objection to this idea of Christ being tempted and yet never sinned. And the objection was, well, how could he really know temptation if he didn't ever sin? He doesn't really know what we experience. And Lewis answered this way, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. <laughs> they have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse until we try to fight against it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Hear that? It's really helpful. He never yielded. Our temptation's over the moment we yield. He never yielded. So he relates. What a powerful understanding of our sympathetic high priest. Now that's what leads him, lastly here, to the therefore of verse 16. You see it? This is his final exhortation. So again, basis, this kind of high priest we have, verse 16, therefore, therefore, we have this high priest. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence or boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive Mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Because we have this kind of high priest who has entered the very presence of God for us, who sympathizes with us, who has been tempted in every way yet without sin. Oh, what an inducement to draw near, to approach the throne of grace with confidence. Again, he's, he's picking up on that Old Testament background that he will develop later on of that high priest entering. People 
people under the Old Covenant did not enter the throne of God. That was symbolized in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, with the cherubim over it, right? That's why it was shielded behind the most, the veil, and only the high priest, once a year, trembling, is going to enter that. Because that's a place of judgment. That's, that's represents where God dwells. And so what a, what a change here. Let us, every one of us who is holding to Christ, let us rush in. Let us, let us approach with joy and confidence to the throne of grace, he calls it. You hear it? So let me just develop that, these two, two things. Let us draw near to God without shame or fear of condemnation or lack of acceptance. I guess what he means by confidence. Do you see it? Let us draw near with confidence. You might say boldness. Again, that's not, that's not a self-confidence. It's not a confidence in me, what I've done. I'm not that, oh, I'm not that bad. God, God would no, we're, we're worse than we could ever imagine. But our priest is so much greater, our high priest. It's, it's confidence because of the priest we have, the high priest we have, who is there at God's right hand, as he'll say, interceding for us. And so the invitation to, to draw near, to, to approach the throne is there with confidence. That is without shame. Or oh, temptation, our tendency, especially when we have blown it again. To just feel hesitant to approach the throne of grace. Like, he's... he's really disappointing in me. No. I, I can't go that there again. <laughs> Approach with confidence, not in you. Yes, we're sinners. We come with repentance, always. But to receive mercy, not reproach. He gives without reproach, James says. Draw near without shame, Without a fear of condemnation, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We learned in Romans 8, 1. Without a fear that I won't be accepted, that's the point of confident. Through Christ, put it this way, through Christ we have authorization to enter God's presence, certain of his gracious acceptance. We have authorization. I know many of you at your work, you deal with clearances, don't you? Security clearances and what clearance you have and where it allows you to go. We have the highest clearance, folks, <laughs> if you will, the highest clearance ever given to the very throne of God through Christ. Oh, come, enter. It's a throne. Do you, do you notice the language there? It's the only time used that I know of in the entire Bible. It's a throne of grace. What a mixed kind of image that is. Because normally when we think of throne room, you're, you're coming in on your face trembling because it represents the majesty of the king, the exaltation of the king, the greatness of the king, the potential judgment of the king. And to call it a throne of grace, 
What a great image. As I said, I don't know anywhere else that that's used. It's not a throne of judgment. It's no longer a throne of judgment for you, Christian. Come with confidence. Find. What are you going to find there? Do you see it? That we may receive mercy and find grace. Not condemnation, not shame, not judgment. Find grace, find mercy. But his aim here is more specific. You see how he says it? He's not thinking of just that initial coming to God in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, though gloriously true. He's talking to us as Christians, this ongoing approach to the throne of grace to draw near that we may receive mercy. And notice what he says, and may find grace to help in time of need. So let me give you my last note here. Let us draw near to God in the face of trials and temptations to receive grace needed to hold firmly to the faith we possess. Draw near in the face of our need, our difficulty, overwhelming temptation, overwhelming trial to find the grace needed so that we continue to hold our confession, to hold firmly to Christ, to overcome, to withstand, whether it's affliction or temptation, and often those are hand in hand, how much temptation comes from affliction, right? to give up, not trust God, not believe what his word says. You don't know my situation. You don't know what I'm in. That's how we think of ourselves. There's just no, no way, no way that he could help here. Don't we say that often by our actions? You, just, you don't know how bad it is. You don't know how deep my problem is. You don't know how bad the other person is that I'm with. And No way. Remember the high priest you have. He was tempted in every way. He not only knows it, he knows it better than you. Think of what he faced, the temptation he faced to not trust his father. It's a thousand times weightier than what we have faced. And so understand, draw near. That's, that's the incentive to draw near. There's, there's grace there to help in time of need. And that it's, it's a well-timed help is the idea. He's thinking of our specific circumstance. Remember, his, his readers are in danger of, of giving up, whether it's affliction, persecution, whether it's lure of pleasure, whether it's shame, whatever it is. He's saying, draw near, and you will find grace to persevere. Specific assistance in time of need, whether it's suffering, whether it's opposition from others, whether it's strong temptation that we continue to battle, his grace is sufficient. So we told Paul in his affliction, my grace is sufficient for you. So, do you draw near? How often, how often do you draw near with supplication, with longing, with prayer, with worship? How, how often do you draw near and avail yourself? How do you draw near? Again, is it just with shame and reluctance and with unbelief? I don't think he can really help or with confidence because of Christ. 
that this grace right now is available to keep me holding fast to Jesus. Oh, may we love to approach the throne of grace. Let me pray for us as we close. Father, we ask now that you would just press this reality into our hearts. That we would just love to avail ourselves of the grace at your throne because Christ is there. Shake off our guilty fears. Throw off our wrong shame. We come, we come. Yes, in repentance. Yes, with mercy, seeking mercy and grace to help us. So strengthen us. Strengthen us by your grace, whatever we're facing right now, to believe your promises, to believe your word, to believe that you are able, and to love our high priest. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.